Hi. There I am. Cool beans. How you guys doing today? All right, so at this time, um, we are now done with kind of worship, and so this is the time for uh, kids. We do have a uh, children's ministry right there. Look at Jeremy. Hey, look at that. Isn't he cool? Uh, so if you guys have kids, uh, kind of kindergarten through fifth grade, uh, or younger than that too, we also have like birth through preschool. This is their time. Feel free to leave uh, as well, and they can, they can join them. You guys having a good week so far? All right, uh, if you guys don't know me, uh, my name is Ricky, and that's perfectly okay that you don't know me because I am absolutely no one important. Uh, when I came in here today, <laughs> Auburn, uh, Gabe's daughter was actually up here and said, Ricky, a pastor's supposed to dress up. Uh, <laughs> I said, I am dressed up. I look like a normal, mundane, average, everyday human being. Uh, so that's, you know, this is what you guys get today. Um, so some of you guys uh, may not have been here with us uh, throughout the summer, or maybe this is kind of your first few uh, times visiting us anyway, and you're still in kind of that dating phase with us of kind of seeing what we're about and who we are uh, before you kind of, you know, make the jump and we DTR. Um, so just a little bit of history about where we are and, and kind of where we're at with things is um, if you are here now, then uh, you just missed, we just finished about a three-year um, series on the book of Luke. We called it A Meal with Jesus, and we started in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, and just kind of broke it down bit by bit, chunk by chunk, uh, and it took us about three years to get to the end. Before that, we spent about a year in Galatians. Like uh, at the branch, we're really big on uh, equipping you guys to be able to read and to understand scripture on your own, and we find the best way to do that is just start from the beginning and work to the end, little bit by little bit, read it in its context. Um, but since we finished over the summer, now usually summertime is a good place to kind of take a break, uh, to relax, to reflect a little bit, and so before we jump in to our 12-year series on the book of Leviticus or whatever it is that we do next, um, I don't think that's it. I don't know, though. You know, I never know. Um, I figured that we would take a time to do something different and again reflect. And so what we chose to reflect on are the attributes of God, kind of asking that question, who is God? Because it's, it can be oftentimes kind of confusing and we take it for granted that even when you ask someone, do you believe in God? That is a loaded question. Uh, because what God are you talking about? What does that even mean when you say, do you believe in God? Who is God? What does that mean? What does it look like? And so kind of being able to, to break that down into the attributes that we see in Scripture, the characteristics of God that we see throughout the Bible uh, and then through Jesus Christ. Um, we've been saying a quote, and I am a dumb, dumb head, and I don't remember who said it. I'm sure it was Tozer or someone like that, but uh, it says that we cannot know God fully, but that we can know him truly. And so that is uh, really our attempt uh, with this series is we're never going to know him fully, right? Um, but we can begin to know him truly. So as we take that deep dive into the endless ocean that is God, that these are kind of points of light, little references that we can look to and illuminate some things uh, about God. And one thing that I have uh, I've noticed uh, throughout this series, and for those of you that have been here with us, um, throughout the summer, maybe you've heard as well, is almost every single person that's come up here to speak, whether it's me or Gabe or uh, Carlton or Daniel or Dylan, whoever else, um, we've said the same thing over and over again that's like, man, that is really hard to preach these, right? These are very complicated. Um, these are very nuanced issues that they're very controversial in many ways. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff. And so how difficult it is to kind of pare that down and synthesize that into 40 minutes and be able to, and to preach it. And while that is true, I, I absolutely agree with that. I don't think that anyone has really mentioned just how hard it is for you guys to listen to them. And I don't just mean because they're boring. Um, but in addition to you guys having to do all the same things that we who are preaching it are doing, you know, taking these very big, complex, convoluted, controversial ideas and like pare it down into a 30-minute sermon with three to five bullet points, you guys also don't have the context of the hours and, and weeks of prayer and research and reading that goes into it beforehand. I mean, like, we're going into this with like 900 pages worth of stuff that we're paring down and you guys aren't hearing that in the context and you're, you're only hearing the words that we say and hopefully we're saying them effectively enough. The best way I can picture it is it seems to me like a lot of times, especially with big sermons like this, that we're standing you guys in front of a fire hose with a Dixie cup and we're saying don't spill anything, right? Uh, and that can be difficult, and that can be frustrating, and that can be hard. And a lot of times that leads to then us as listeners falling into kind of a couple of pitfalls. So before we get started into the next kind of attribute that we're at, I'd like for us to just kind of take, take some time and to look at what those pitfalls are. 
so that we don't get caught in them, right? The, the first one is that we make assumptions. Um, because these topics, while complex, are also usually ones that we've all heard of before, right? If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that God loves you, right? You know that God never changes. You know that God is all-powerful, and you can do all things through him who strengthens you, right? These are all things that we've heard over and over and over and over again, and especially in the West, we oftentimes confuse memorization for understanding, Right? And so we connect these very big, very complex ideas with very simplistic experiences and opinions that we as Americans know we also, we love our opinions, right? We hold really tight to them. And that leads to us to make assumptions. We hear things, we instantly, we connect it to an experience and opinion we have, and, and we jump the gun, right? So someone could stand up here and say, today we're talking about sovereignty, and immediately a panic button is hit, and you say like, oh, I've heard this one before. He's gonna go over these five points. We're gonna read this verse in Romans. Wake me up at lunchtime when it's over, right? We, we think that we get it already. But I would, what I would challenge us uh, in the beginning before we even hear anything to do is to understand that God is much bigger than our experiences and he's certainly so much bigger than our opinions. And the Holy Spirit absolutely can work in us and through us outside of those experiences and opinions. Does that make sense? That God is bigger than who we think he is. We don't get to box him up. And so I would challenge you guys today to drop assumptions, right? To be in the moment, listen to the words that are being said and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and to see what is stirred up. The next thing that we do from that, usually from our assumptions, is that we begin to make criticisms. And I am really bad uh, about this as well. Um, it is human nature for us to project ourselves onto God. It is absolutely every single one of us, like look at me, you are guilty of projecting yourself onto God. If you don't believe me, I mean, it's kind of all around us. I guarantee you, if you were a Bernie Sanders fan, then you think that Jesus was a socialist, right? If you listen to heavy metal music, then you think that Jesus had ear gauges. If you have tattoos, then you think Jesus would have loved tattoos and probably would have had his own. If you don't have tattoos, then you probably think that Jesus would have been against tattoos. If you were born and raised in the South, then you think that Jesus was just a good old boy who worked construction and loved his mama, right? <laughs> it is absolutely human nature for us to take our own opinions and personalities and to try and make God be more like us rather than to make us be more like God. And that leads to then us making criticisms. We have those assumptions there, and so when people speak something that goes against those assumptions, that go against those experiences, then we critique them and we start saying like, oh, well, I wouldn't have said it that way, or we, you know, we, turn, our, we turn our head off. Uh, and I am horrible at this. I will admit to you guys right now, I'm just kind of admitting my sin. I am way more arrogant than I let on. It is very, very, very difficult for me to listen to any pastor, no matter who it is, uh, without having endless notes in my head of how I could have said what they're trying to say better. And so, again, I would challenge you guys today um, to recognize that. I know Laura and I, we have this rule uh, because we talk about God and we don't always agree on everything. Not every single point of our theology lines up. We have different experiences. We have different opinions. And when we reach a point in our conversations where we're, you know, not 100% lined up, uh, we kind of have this rule where we'll look at each other and we'll say, first off, you're wrong, but that's okay. Um, but secondly... <laughs> It is okay that we have this difference of opinion as long as we can answer this question correctly. And that's that when our opinion directly comes into conflict with God, do we change our opinion or do we change our God? If we can look at ourselves emotionally and honestly and answer that, yes, I am not so connected to this opinion, whatever it may be, that when it comes or if it comes directly in conflict with God, that I wouldn't drop the opinion and pursue my father further, right? If we can honest, answer that honestly, well then, okay, well then let's move on. And so as we're speaking today and as we're talking, I would like for you guys to, again, just let the Holy Spirit work in you, let it convict you, let it move through you, ask yourselves what assumptions am I making? At what points am I having some sort of conflict in that? And if I have an opinion that today goes in direct conflict with God, who, who are you going to change? Which one are you going to change? Are you going to change your opinion or are you going to change your God? Now, all that being said, like why do I go that deep into what we're talking about? Is because today we're going through grace. The attribute that we are looking at is God's grace, that we serve a God of grace. And why is that important? Um, I, I would argue very strongly that grace is probably the attribute of God that we as Christians talk the most about. It is the most enmeshed in our culture. Would you guys agree with that? Uh, I mean, a, 
even the songs that we sing today, it's all throughout our worship songs, uh, this idea of grace, this idea that God gives us grace, that we are saved by grace and grace alone. Uh, the most famous hymnal in all of Christendom is amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? Um, it's all throughout our language as Christians. I, where I work, I, I work for a, a missions organization, and anytime they're making like unfair changes or they're springing something on us last minute, they're going to come to us and be like, all right, guys, we just need to have some grace for each other. And that's when I know. I was like, oh, God, it's coming. Um, <laughs> we all have T-shirts and coffee mugs and bumper stickers that say I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's all throughout our language, our colloquialisms that we use, our vernacular as Christians. Uh, I looked up today, uh, the hashtag grace on Instagram has well over 8.2 million posts. Um, I guarantee that if we were to do a show of hands in here, we don't have to, but every single one of us, I bet, know at least one person that has the word grace in their name. Mary Grace, Bethan Grace, Grace Ann, Elizabeth Grace. It's so enmeshed in our culture as Christians that we're staking our identity on it. I am grace. That's a bold statement as Christians to make, right? And yet we do it. We do it almost flippantly. Uh, we do it without even thinking about it. There's this um, story. It's really, it's probably a legend, I guess. I have no idea if it's true. It's probably not, but it's cool to say. Um, there's a story that out in the UK, in Lady London Town, the mother country, uh, at some point, long, long ago in a distant, faraway land, that there was this conference of comparative religions. And so they had all of these, um, these people with doctorates and famous authors and professors and speakers that were coming um, to talk about this idea of comparative religions, whether it be in philosophy or theology or history. And after kind of the conference was winding down to the end, after all the, the speakers and sessions had broken out, a group of professors and speakers were sitting in a room and they decided to just have kind of a healthy debate. And they asked themselves this, Christian, this question. They said, what, if anything, makes Christianity special, makes it different? So as they're kind of debating back and forth, pinging off each other, and well, is it this? No, it can't be that because you know Hindus and, and uh, Muslims, they have that idea too. And it can't be this over here because the Egyptians have had stories like that from thousands of years before Jesus, so it's not that. And somewhere in the midst of their argument, healthy discussion, C.S. Lewis comes in. Uh, for those of you that don't know, in addition to writing the Chronicles of Narnia, he was also a very gifted theologian. Uh, and he was a professor at Ivy League schools. Uh, it was either Oxford or Cambridge, one of those. Ox Oxford, it was Oxford. Apparently it was Oxford. Um, and so C.S. Lewis comes in to get coffee or whatever C.S. Lewis does. And uh, the professors, they see him come in. They're like, hey, C.S. Lewis, we have a question for you. We want your opinion on this. What, if anything, makes Christianity unique and different? And according to the story, C.S. Lewis didn't even you know, think about it and skip a beat. He just said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And then as he left the room, it said everyone else in the room was shocked, was kind of stunned, because they could not think of another religion that offers this same promise of unconditional love and grace, of getting what we do not deserve. So grace, above all of the attributes of God, or at least we as Christians, we hold on to it as what makes us different, what makes us unique. And so uh, throughout this week and, and last week, a lot of people would ask me, like, hey, Ricky, when are you preaching? Which one do you have? And I would tell them, I have grace. And even, like, right beforehand, I think someone asked me, what are you preaching on? And I said, grace. And the response is, oh, well, that one's easy, right? You've got that one. That one is simple. And I get what, what we mean because we talk about it all the time. It's the most enmeshed in our culture. It's the one that we seemingly we get the most. However, I have to respectfully disagree because another quote that we've been saying, I think it was from Matt Thomas was the one who initially said it. He said something to the effect of, the moment that we think that we understand God is the moment that we no longer understand God. That the deepness of his character goes beyond our understanding. And when we're looking at something as quintessential, as central to the Christian faith, as unique as the gospel of grace, I think it is only fair for us to extend that statement as well, and to say that the moment that we think that we understand the grace of God is the moment that we no longer understand God. His grace goes beyond our understanding. His grace goes beyond compare. It is mysterious. It is powerful. And if we think we get it, then a panic button should be hit because we're missing the point. So what is it? right? Got to start with some kind of basic definition, and then we can start looking into scripture and to see what, what does the Bible tell us? What does God actually tell us about his 
grace. So there's a couple different definitions. If you were to go to seminary and if you were to buy really expensive books written by a bunch of dead people, they would give you the definition that grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor, which I have written in my notes. Gabe even asked me about it. I wrote, yuck, because it's such a dry, like tasteless, like Melba toast answer, right? It's horrible unmerited favor. I mean, I guess it gets the job done, but for something as beautiful and as big and incomprehensible as grace that we just talked about, to put it in two words, unmerited favor, ugh, I don't like that one. But it is a definition, a working definition that we have of grace. Another definition that we have uh, is kind of separating the idea of mercy from grace. Because a lot of times we as Christians, I think we kind of put the two together. We look at them as the same, but they are different ideas. The definition says that mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But on the other hand, grace over here is getting what you don't deserve. Right? So mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. A good way of explaining that, again, Matt Thomas, he's really good for like those, those, little, those little nuggets, you know what I mean? Uh, but like seven years ago, some crazy ridiculous long time ago in our friendship, um, Matt was actually giving a, uh, like a spoken word kind of poetry night at some church coffee shop, whatever, somewhere. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget it. I, I don't remember a lot of the things around it while we were there, but I do remember that in the poem, uh, he mentioned this. He was talking about, again, that idea of mercy and grace. And he said, mercy is getting pulled over by a cop knowing that you're doing 90 and a 45, and the cop comes up to you and says, you and I both know that you were speeding, but I'm going to let you off with just a warning. Grace, on the other hand, is when that same cop taps on your window five minutes later and says, you know what? You and I both know that you were speeding, but here's $1,000. And by the way, I want to invite you to my house tonight for dinner because my daughter is single and she's beautiful and I really think you guys would get along. <laughs> that girl ended up being Sarah. Matt, you didn't know it, but you're a cop. Um, and so the difference between mercy and grace are just explaining to us the idea of, of mercy being not getting what we deserve, knowing that we deserve punishment, that we deserve consequences for our actions and not receiving those. Whereas grace is on top of all of that to be given something that we know that we did not deserve, that we did not do anything to earn that idea. That's what we're looking at. That's a, a basic, very simplistic definition of what grace is. And so now we're finally going to actually get to the text and open the Bible. And I, I will warn you guys, too, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. We've got several verses to look at. Uh, but we're going to start kind of building the foundation and the argument for what is God's grace. First, looking at what is it that God actually did. And for that, I want you guys to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Go to Genesis chapter 15. And while you guys are turning there, I think it is worth mentioning that as I was doing the research and I was looking through what I was going to talk about, all the things that I decided on that were important to speak were all in the Old Testament. So often we hear that the God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament, they almost feel like they're different people, right? That maybe throughout the Old Testament, God woke up on the wrong side of the bed because he's vengeful and wrathful. Uh, but then all of a sudden it's like, okay, he took a Claritin, his allergies are fixed, and now he's this graceful good guy. Um, but what I hope to show you guys today, what I hope that we see, is that God had the intention of grace from the beginning of creation, and he showed us that over and over and over and over again throughout time. So, looking at Genesis chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 9, okay? And he said to him, the he and him, that's this is God speaking to Abraham right now. And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham, or Abram, drove them away. And the next part, we're actually going to skip over that. Uh, but this is then, now God is talking to Abraham, and he's explaining to him some of the things that are going to happen to him in his life, giving more promise and prophecy there. So jump ahead now to chapter 17, or excuse me, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Gershasites, and the Jebusites. So, 
what we see here that just happened is we've got Abram, right? We've all heard of Abraham. Abram, his name turned into Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Uh, and so where we're at right now is that God has already spoken to Abram and he has given him this command to leave his homeland and go to a place that he has called him to be. And he has promised Abram that he would give him a son, even though that Sarah was way too old and was considered barren, but he's promised that he would give him a son and that through that son, that he would make a great name for Abram. He promised that he would turn him into a great nation and he promised that the worlds would be blessed, the nations would be blessed through him. He's given him the sign of circumcision at this point, uh, and then he decides to close it all up, wrap it up in a bow, through a covenant. And that word covenant is another word that if you've been in the church, you've heard over and over and over and over and over again, right? Everyone here heard the word covenant? Yes? No? Okay. Especially if you've been to a wedding in the past umpteen thousand years, then you've heard about covenants. Because at every single wedding, they all stand before you and they say, like, marriage is not a contract. Instead, it is a covenant, Right? And yes, that's true, that's good, but I think that when we talk about it in that way, a lot of times we do covenants a little bit of an injustice because they weren't designed necessarily to be these kind of esoteric, very ethereal, spiritual things between a God and man, and it's I'll love you forever and always, and doves fly out. Um, but that it was, in fact, it was a, a higher form of a, of a contract. And we see that in this really weird animal thing that's taken place, right? He took a, a heifer, he took a female goat, he took a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, splayed them in half, uh, and then put them one on each side, right? So like this weird kind of animal sacrifice thing. And at this point, this is actually what covenants looked like. So when two people would make a covenant, it was kind of like a partnership, and they would take these animals, they would sacrifice them, they would lay them down one on each side with the uh, point that in between them would be a river of blood. And then both people would stand on either side of their line of corpses and they would say their terms for the covenant and they would walk down the sides of the animals. Basically suggesting and, and implying that by walking down this line of animals that if I don't keep my end of the bargain, let me be like these animals, right? That I will be sacrificed in their place now, that I would be killed like they were. Um, another way to talk about it, any Harry Potter fans in here? Any Harry Potter fans? Okay, uh, sixth book, Half-Blood Prince, where they make the unbreakable vow, right? Snape makes the unbreakable vow. What happens if you break an unbreakable vow? You die, right? And so that is the difference between a contract and a covenant, is that in a contract, if you break it, you can get sued for a whole bunch of money. In a covenant, if you break it, you die, right? And so here we see that God is making a covenant with Abram, or to, soon to give the name Abraham to, and the terms of the covenant is that, Abraham, if you follow my commandments, then I, God, will make you a great nation, right? And then something weird happens. So we, we get that. We understand that. Okay, so we're making this promise. And then we kind of get the next part of it, too. Like, oh, Abraham's going to break this promise, and then he's going to be worthy of death, right? He broke the covenant. He deserves to die. But before that happens, Abraham falls asleep. And then he has this kind of dream vision thing of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between these pieces. And then it says, the next thing is, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And so this smoking pot and this flaming torch, we first have to understand that these are representations of God, that these pictures of fire that Abram is seeing are manifestations of God, that God is showing himself to Abram in this way, walking down the lines of this covenant. Um, if you don't believe me, that God kind of has a weird thing with fire, of showing himself in fire. Uh, we think about Exodus when he appeared to Moses as a burning bush, right? Later on, as he's leading the people of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land, during the day he appeared as a pillar of cloud. At night he appeared as a pillar of fire, uh, the book of Acts later on, uh, day of Pentecost, we've got um, the disciples that are uh, in the upper room, and it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon them as cloven tongues of fire, right? God kind of has a thing with fire that uh, he cannot show us his full presence, but that he chooses to show it in these different ways. Uh, and in this case, it was a smoking pot and a torch. And so we talked about a covenant is when two people walk down, all right, this splayed animals saying, I promise to keep my end of the bargain or, or else I accept death. And so in this case, Abraham falls asleep and God shows himself walking down both sides of the covenant and then stating the covenant has been made. So the important thing to catch there with that is that what is 
being said here right now, what God is stating by walking down both sides of the covenant is that I, God, am responsible for my end of the bargain. And if I, God, break my promises, then I deserve death. And by the same token, you, Abraham, are responsible for your end of the bargain. And if you break your promises, then I, God, am still responsible and deserve death. He decides to take the responsibility and the consequences for both ends of the covenant is what we see here. Even from the beginning, setting up that if Abraham decides to go against and to rebel against God, that God is the one that takes the burden of those consequences of his sins upon himself. And we see that later on in Jesus and in the crucifixion. And so we see that this is what God has done. He's taken responsibility for both sides. And now we see what God did. Okay, that's great. That's cool. I, I kind of get that picture of where we are with God and with Abraham. How now does that apply to, to me where I'm at, right? What does that actually do for us? What did that do for us? And for that, we're going to turn again. So I want you guys to go forward now in time to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. It is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Okay? Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew in the New Testament. Right? So go to Matthew chapter 1 and go backwards a little bit. Zechariah chapter 3. When you got it, shout glory. <laughs> I'm not starting till I hear someone shout glory. Glory, I heard one. Good. We guys there? Are we there? Yeah, All right, glory. Thank you very much. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay. So we're looking at Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through about 6. And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on my head. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So a little bit of background about what you guys just read. So we were in Genesis. We read about Abraham. Abraham had his many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. We now have the 12 tribes of Israel. We're past all that. David has already come and gone. We're past all of that. We are now at a point where Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, has come. They have attacked. They have destroyed the temple, wiped out Jerusalem. They have taken them captive, and they are now in exile, away from their homeland, and have been for about 70 years. So they are in a bad place. And this prophet, Zechariah, is telling them that that time of exile is almost up and that God will be restoring them as his people and is commanding them to rebuild the temple and is giving them all this through a series of visions. And so what we just read was one of those five visions. And with it, we see Joshua, who is the high priest of Israel at that time, standing before God as judge, surrounded by angels. So first off, woe, right? Big, very powerful holy scene, God in his majesty as a righteous judge, ready to bestow justice and wrath upon any who would come against him, surrounded by the heavenly hosts. All right, so we see God in his glory. We see Joshua, by contrast, covered in filthy garments, and standing beside him is Satan to accuse him. And so see that those filthy garments are representing of Israel's sin. And Satan is there to accuse Joshua in front of God as judge and is giving against them, speaking to God, all of the sins that Israel has committed at the time. And it doesn't say here that he's, he's trying to manipulate God. That would be dumb, right? We know he wouldn't do that. And so these accusations are absolutely correct. Israel is standing before God completely and totally guilty of sin, and Satan is there to prove it to them to absolutely rub in his face. You have broken the covenant in every way, shape, and form. You are completely and totally guilty before a holy and righteous God. And God responds by rebuking Satan. God responds by looking at Joshua in his sin and telling the accuser to shut his mouth. 
Is this not a brand that has been plucked from the fire? That even in Joshua's sin, even in the sins of all of Israel, that God is looking down on him, is remembering the covenant that he has made, and is saying, I've already paid for this. This is covered. I am the one that is responsible for paying for the sins of these people, not him. And so you have no place to tell me what, is, what they deserve. I am the one that made this covenant and stated the terms in the first place and takes off the filthy rags of Joshua and replaces them with clean ones. That God at that point in the midst of his sin not only did not give him what he deserved, but gave him what he did not deserve, made him righteous in his own sight. So what what does that look like for us? It looks like you standing with filthy garments in the midst of a very holy God, knowing that we are guilty, right? Being pulled over, knowing that we did 90 and a 45, but instead of receiving a ticket, instead Jesus is looking as God is looking at us in the midst of the heavenly host and is saying that I have made you righteous. I will clothe you, right? I will give you clean vestments. We look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I think it's important then for us to notice too and what this actually does for us is this also kind of proves that grace does not negate God's justice or wrath, but rather it proves it, right? It's important for us to see and understand the power of what it is that's happening because if we say that God is gracious, which I think, again, it's the word that we use more than anything else, I think that we would agree with that. The next statement that needs to come out of our mouth, the next question we need to ask is grace from what? If there are no rules, if there is no justice, then there is no grace grace, right? There is no way to save us from that judgment. And so this story then proves that God is a God of justice, that God is a God of holiness, and that grace proves that. It is a part of that. And the crucifixion then at this point becomes the ultimate manifestation then of God's, both his justice and his wrath, right? Of his justice and his grace, I'm sorry. Justice and wrath, and then grace over here, that the crucifixion becomes the point where those two things meet. God, uh, being a God of holiness, being a God who keeps his word, absolutely, making the covenant with Abram, taking responsibility for both sides, saying, I will keep my end of the bargain by also saving us and dying for our sins throughout all of time. So what does this look like for us? It looks like that you are no longer held responsible for the consequences of your wrongdoing in the same way that Abraham was not held responsible for the consequences of his wrongdoing, that God took the burden of our sin away from us, that we are in the same place, that we can stand here knowing that we are guilty before God, but that he has taken that burden off of us. And that's a big, very bold statement. Uh, look at Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It reminds me of, again, I know quotes, I don't know who said them. I think it was Piper. I want to say it's Piper. Can we say it's Piper? It was Piper. Uh, He said, the only person bold enough to wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And that's who we are in this moment right? That going into a place where we do not belong, that we do not deserve, and being able to boldly draw to that throne room of grace. So we've looked at what God did. He took responsibility for both ends of the covenant. What does that do for us? It extends down to us. Even in our sin, God is making us righteous and taking the responsibility of that sin away from us. So the next question to ask is, how do we then respond, right? Okay, I know what this, what God did. I know what it does for me, but like, what does that look like? Um, there's this, um, I remember I was, I was listening to this, uh, to this, uh, he was a rapper, he's a Christian rapper, uh, as well, and, um, he was talking about discipleship at the point. He said that uh, anytime when it comes to these big kind of Christian words like discipleship or grace or anything, he's like, we can give these ideas, these really big out there things that kind of change the way we think, but if I don't know, like, hey, Thursday at noon, what do I do? Then it's worthless, Right? And so we have to understand that with grace now, all right, Thursday at noon, like what do you do? So the last place that I want us to turn to today is we're going to look at Romans chapter 6. So now we're actually going into the New Testament through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, right? When you're there shall glory. (laughs) Glory. Say it so the Lord can hear, Carlton. (laughs) Glory. Glory, there, there we are. Everybody else there? 
All right, so we're going to look at chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and then I'm going to jump again. We're going to look at uh, 8 through 21, 18 through 21. All right, so verses 6 through 11. Then we're going to skip a little bit. We're going to look at 18 through 21. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. Jumping down to verse 18, and therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He's talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection there. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came uh, in to increase the trespass. This is the important part where I want to kind of land. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I just want to look at that one more time in there. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We know that Jesus and his death on the cross, it paid for our sins throughout time. We know that that was the culmination of God keeping his end and our end at that point of the covenant. So we can stand now before God and know that we have been reconciled back to him. Where sin abides, their grace abides all the more. The best way I can explain it is, look at this. Um, Think about God being over here, right? And we know that we are somewhere over here. And the space between that, you can consider your sin, right? Um, Where we fall short. And grace is what fills the gap. And so if you're over here and you think that your relationship with God is doing great, grace is what fills the gap and allows us to get to God. And if at some point you feel that you have fallen farther away, if by some point you feel that you are less righteous, that you are more wicked, that you are less deserving, that you haven't been in church in several months, or that you know that you're doing something that you would be terrified if anyone in the church found out, if you feel that you are the one that is moving farther back, grace is what fills the gap completely and totally, always. If you're over here, you now can get to God because grace fills the gap. If you're way over here, you can get to God because grace fills the gap. If you are all the way down in Dawsonville, right, grace is what fills the gap and allows you to get to God. Where where sin abounds, their grace abounds all the more. The more that we sin, the more that we feel that you have gotten farther away from God, the more God gets to show his character of grace to us and multiply it. It never runs out. He, by nature, is a God who gives what we do not deserve. Where sin abounds, their grace abounds all the more. We get to actually say in this moment, we've all kind of heard it said from the, from the pulpit, from other pastors, and that we can't do anything to earn God's favor, right? There's literally nothing you can do to earn your salvation. What I'm telling you is in addition to that, that God is also telling us that you don't have to. That not only can you never, ever, ever do anything to bridge that gap completely to get it to where you deserve to be on the other side of God, but you don't have to. That in fact, the Bible looks at it, we see, I'm trying to find my place here, Galatians 2.21, that I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we could do anything to bridge that gap ourselves, Christ would, God himself would cease to be who he is. He, by nature, is someone who gives what we don't deserve, which means that we don't deserve it. We can never do anything to deserve it, and now, because God has taken that responsibility onto himself, we don't have to. We don't need to earn our salvation, and that is a very bold statement. Jesus has given it to us already. And the next question, then, we're going to end on this because I know there's one thing that would burn in everyone's mind if we left it here, and that is, what about works? What do I actually do then? I thought that the point of this last point was to tell me on Thursday what I do. You just told me that I don't have to do anything. 
So what does that look like? And that's one of those things that I'll start off by saying a very bold and, and conscious and encouraging, uh, right? That this is a, a lot of part of where the grace of God is mysterious. This is where the grace of God it goes beyond our comprehension because we do have to look at these two ideas as being very much so in contention with each other. That on one hand, we just looked at that the entirety of the Bible is pointing us to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one that brings salvation. That God's grace is the only thing that fills that gap and we cannot do anything to bridge it ourselves. That we need to have his grace in order to get to the presence of God. All right, That he is the one that takes off our filthy garments. That we can't do it ourselves. But on the other hand, it would be complete and total folly to think that that somehow means we get a get out of jail free card. Right? It would be absolutely, it would be arrogant and it would be stupid of us to think that now we get to sit down with a fidget spinner in a white room and I don't have to do anything, right? Jordan, I did it. I used the word fidget spinner in a sermon. I did it. I seamlessly worked it in. I will be collecting afterwards. We look at Romans 6.1. It says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Earlier in Romans chapter 3, Paul goes as, as far to say that their condemnation is just. The people who actually look and say, why don't I just sin? Because that means like, hey, God's grace gets to abound in me, right? So this is actually a good thing. We can look at that and we can see that God's grace, that understanding that, that knowing that, would drastically and completely change everything in our entire lives. So what then, when we have these two ideas very much so in conflict with each other, how do we resolve that? And the best analogy that I can come up with is this. If you guys have met me or known me or had any kind of conversations with me for more than like five minutes, you know that I am a massive nerd. I just am. I, I was actually, I, we had a new girl at work the other day and she was supposed to sit down with us and like talk with us for just a minute about what we do and like how our jobs intertwine. That was it. I talked to her for like five minutes, said my job title, I said what I do. And then as we were leaving, she's like, you're kind of nerdy, aren't you? And, I was like, I'm, I guess, I don't know why I'm offended by that, but I am a little bit. Uh, I am. I, I am a, I'm a massive nerd, and one of the things that I love are board games. Uh, when I say board games, I don't mean Monopoly. That's not a board game. Uh, what I mean... Uh, yeah, you get bored playing it, so I guess, I guess that does do it. No, I'm much more talking about, like, Parks and Rec, right? Like, Cones of Dunshire. Like, that game sounds awesome. That, that's what I'm looking at. These kind of like strategy indie board games that no one has ever heard of uh, in the world and they take nine hours to explain the rules and another 12 hours to play. Those games, like that is my jam. I love it. I'm also horrible at them. I'm, I'm awful. I lose every time. My mind, it wanders and I think of all of the cool things that I could do and then I forget that it's my turn and I don't know what I should actually do, right? And so I, I almost always lose at them, especially when I kind of first discovered them. And as cheesy and kind of depressing as it may sound, that actually, like, would frustrate me. For a long time, like, that was a point of anxiety for me. Uh, and if that seems silly for you, just think about it. Would anyone spend time practicing a sport if they knew they would never make the team? That was kind of the idea, is that usually people like things that they're good at. And so here's the thing that I like, but I'm not good at it. And so I kid you not, like, I would spend a lot of time, like, I would practice playing board games. I have Google Sheets on my computer right now where I have optimized moves turn by turn so I can look at them and see how effective they were and the likelihood that I could win a game. I have done this, and I would still <laughs> lose. I told you, I'm a massive nerd. And at some point, I had to stop. I had to, like, take a deep breath. I had to look at myself, and I had to ask myself a question. I had to say, what is the purpose of playing these games? Like, honestly, what is the purpose of me spending time in playing these games? If the purpose is for me to win, then I need to come to the conclusion that I will never be good enough. It's just not the way that my mind works. It's not something that I'm good at. I will never be good enough. However, if the purpose of me playing these games is that I get to spend time with my friends, I get to build community in a shared experience that we all enjoy and something that I find as artistic and creative and oftentimes beautiful. If that is the purpose of why I'm playing these games, then I'm doing just fine. I'm doing great. I am abounding in my purpose at this point, completely and totally fulfilling it. And once I did that, once I did the exact same thing, honestly, 
but changed my purpose, the anxiety left at that point. Because I knew that regardless, at that point, winning and losing, it didn't matter. That's not why I was doing it. I could lose every single game, but as long as I was, at that point, having fun, spending time with my friends, building community in that, I was fulfilling my purpose. In the same way, I'm here to tell you that if you are doing acts of righteousness, right, the things that make us a good Christian, if you are here right now, if you signed up to be on the pipeline, if you are going to an MC or a part of a DNA, if you are reading your Bible every single morning like a good little Christian boy or girl and you are doing it to somehow be a better Christian, you will never be good enough. If you are doing it because you think that what you are doing is pleasing God, you will never be good enough. If you think that it makes up for some sort of past sin that you've made, right? That this is how you work out your discipleship at some point, that this is what makes you a Christian and you can say it, you will never be good enough. Grace is the only thing that fills the gap. If we could be saved by works, then Christ died for nothing. You'll never be good enough. However, if the purpose of these actions is to show what God has already done for us, to express the love that you feel and that you know, to show that God is the giver of grace, and it is in the process at that point of putting everything under his feet at Lord, and you admit to yourself and to God that this is how you go through your life in just expressing who he is and who you believe him to be and your growth in that relationship, now, now you are getting, I believe, to the purpose of works. It is not so much about the winning or the losing as much as the purpose of are you enjoying your time with God? It reminds me a lot of if you were to go back to the, the book of Luke and you were to look at the parable of the prayer, the Pharisee who is praying versus the tax collector. Have you guys heard that story? Right? The Pharisee comes and says, like, thank you so much, God, that I'm not like this evil tax collector over here. I pray three times a day and I fast once a week and look at me. You know, I'd, I smell my own farts or whatever. Uh, and then it says the other guy, it doesn't actually say that. That's, that's my translation. But, and it says the tax collector, on the other hand, beats his chest and looks at God and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then he says, I tell you the truth that the tax collector has walked off. He has been forgiven, but the Pharisee did not. That a lot of us are spending all of our time keeping score, right? But perhaps instead of looking at our Jesus righteousness index and kind of keeping track of, well, I got this sin over here, which is minus two, but I, I did listen to a Christian podcast, and so that's plus three. And, you know, like I, I called in to win free Toby Mac tickets on 104.7 The Fish, so I think that's like a plus 15 down here, so I think I'm in the positive, right? That instead of keeping score at some point, that perhaps instead we need to wake up and to actually ask ourselves and be honest with God and say, what would it look like for me to show your love and grace today? What would it actually look like for me to express who I know you to be at this point and to put my trust and my faith in that today? What would that look like? And that's what I would challenge us today to do, to recognize that we serve a God of grace, that that is what fills the gaps, that we will never, ever do anything that will bridge that gap for us, but instead it is only him through the power of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And so what would it look like for you to wake up and say, God, how do I show your love and, and faith and, and grace today? For some of us, that may look like getting your stuff together. For some of us, I know that you're thinking about it again when I said, like, if the church found out, you'd be, like, terrified. For some of us, showing God and living in his grace and knowing what it looked like to love you today looks like having some obedience. For others, it may look like dropping some of the stuff that you're using to add to your index and just spending some alone time between you and God. Maybe you don't need to be going to four different Bible studies on, on three different days, right? Maybe, maybe you don't need... Uh, to be the president of every single club that has the word Christian in it, right? Maybe instead you need to lock yourself in a closet like Jesus said and you need to pray just in the spirit and in saying, God, you are good and you are enough and you are more important than these things. And for others of us today, it might even look like just saying and believing and, and asking God, how can I show your grace today? It would be allowing ourselves to break down and cry a little bit it would allow ourselves to actually cry out to God and to say, I don't even know if I believe all this stuff. I don't know if I believe that you are good, but I'm gonna trust that you are at this point. I'm gonna understand that I don't need to be perfect at this point. I don't need to be on board that you have already accepted me at this point and you are allowing me and giving me grace as I speak against you, right? Um, there's a singer, Me Without You, that I, I really appreciate a lot of his music on 
uh, he, he says that a lot of times he has to pray to God and he has to say, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry, right? I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. I am in my sin and I'm working on it and I'm trying to understand it and I'm trying to, to live through it. But honestly, at this point, I'm not sorry that what I'm doing and I'm sorry that I'm not sorry, God. And I need you to just understand that right now. For some of us asking and saying, God, how can I live in your grace is to just say, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. And that's what I wanna leave us with here today is what does grace look like for you? What would it look like to understand that he's given us both everything and nothing? Grace fills the gaps. So what then do we do? The band's gonna come up in just a second and, and we're going to take communion. Um, and this is a representation of that. That in communion, we understand this is Jesus giving the body that is the bread, giving his blood that is the juice or wine. And he's saying that this is sufficient for you, that when you take this, remember me and remember what I have done for you. And so then now this time of communion that we have of corporate worship is a time for us to respond to that. So spend some time, pray, think about it. Ask yourselves what would it look like even now for you to live in God's grace. Um, some practical points with this too. We do have two tables, right, right here, and a lot more than like two of you. So uh, two songs are gonna be playing. That is a lot of time for us to kind of sit in our thoughts, and that's what I would challenge you to do. So uh, I know we kind of have a tendency to like one person gets up and it's like, oh, that's my turn, we're all puppets, and we all go at the same time. Uh, don't do that, just don't do it right? Uh, when you feel the Spirit leading you to go and take communion, then you let the Spirit take you to communion, and not a second earlier, and hopefully that will um, kind of spread out when we go there, and, and we're not, you know, kind of sitting in each other's laps, because that would be weird and awkward, right? Um, let's bow our heads, and let's pray. Dear God, thank you for you. Thank you that we do not serve a God who does not understand our sufferings and our pain, Thank you that we do not serve a God that does not understand our sin or the temptation in it. Thank you, God, that you are here with us. You always have and you always will. Thank you, God, for your powerful and mysterious gospel of grace. Thank you for filling the gaps over and over and over again when we are not good enough, when I am not good enough and when I deserve judgment in telling me that you have plucked me from the fire, that you have given me clean robes to wear. I pray, God, that that would sink in with us. I pray, God, that that would change us at a core level. I pray, God, that, the, um, that us as a congregation, Lord, that you would read our hearts and that we would be open to you reading our hearts. You would work in us so that we would use this time, God, to feel your presence, to know that you are here. Two or more are gathered, you're in the midst of us. There's a lot more than two of us, we just said it. Father, we know that you are here. I pray, God, then, that you would beckon us to respond to that. We love you. We praise you, God. And even when we don't, we know that you still love us. It is in your name, your holy and precious and gracious name that we pray. Amen.